The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Truth be known, I love Mike Wendell. I love American success stories. Think of Mike Wendell with my pillow. He came up with this idea because he didn't sleep well himself, created this type of fill, started making the pillow in Minnesota, all American-made products, all American employees, built and shipped from the upper Midwest. He then invests all of his money in his life, and he goes on TV, becomes one of the fastest-growing companies in America, and there's very few people today that don't know the name Mike Wendell. Well, because of his commercial, I was curious, and I went and I bought myself a couple of my pillows. I fell in love with it. It is the best pillow I've ever used. It is absolutely incredible. So I bought two more, and Nicole sleeps on them too. Then we bought four for my bus. We have the little ones in our plane. I use my pillows everywhere. I even have a travel my pillow in my wardrobe box when I'm shooting that they get to my hotel room for me because hotels have those little pillows, big pillows, soft pillows, hard pillows. When you live in a life on a road like I do, you really see how much pillows impact your life. If you haven't used a my pillow, you're absolutely crazy. It is an incredible product. Mike has absolutely nailed it. And you'd be foolish not to try one. It stays cool all night long. So there's no more waking up at 3 a.m. to flip to the cool side of the pillow. I never flip my pillow anymore. It always keeps its shape. There's no more reshaping your pillow in the middle of the night. It comes with a money-back guarantee until March 1st. Try it. Don't like it. Just return it. My pillow comes with a 10-year warranty. Do you have a pillow that comes with a 10-year warranty? I don't think so. You can toss my pillow in your washer and dryer, and it's like new again. Try doing that with your pillow and see what happens. And it's made in the USA. It's a great product invented with innovation, and it's made in the USA. You really should give MyPillow a try. I did, and it completely changed my life. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the buy one, get one free special, and use code TAFFER, and you'll get one free pillow when you buy one at regular price plus shipping. Take advantage of their best offer. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the buy one, get one free special, and enter promo code TAFFER. You'll be glad you did. MyPillows are the best. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Here we go. Let's do this. Welcome to another No Excuses podcast with me, John Taffer. Boy, it's November 5th, voting week. Got a great episode this week. You know, I'm a huge music fan. A lot of you know that. And I play the drums. I play the guitar. I have a little Marshall mini stack in my office, a couple guitars, drum set. And I've always loved music. Well, I always thought the Misfits were a fascinating band. You know, not a breakout household name band, but really influential in their time, very creative in their time, very innovative in their time. So I am thrilled to have Michael Graves as my guest on this episode, former singer of the Misfits, now with the Michael Graves Band. Michael's story of entrepreneurship, it took him a year and a half to get into the Misfits. He just never gave up. His story of tenacity and his family background and how he became a rock star is a fascinating story. So in a little while, we'll be here with Michael Graves. We're going to do, of course, uh, more listener calls, which is my favorite part of the show. And... The 
This is my birthday week. And as I was uh, getting ready to do this today, and I'm sitting in Palm Springs, California, and in Palm Springs, I have a uh, property that I bought. It's on a water, and there's a golf course here, and it's a place for my bus. And it's one of the world's greatest campgrounds, if you will. It's a country club campground. And I leave my bus here uh, in November to April every year. And this is where I come hang out. And right now I'm surrounded by palm trees, beautiful green grass, and lagoons around me. And, and uh, it's great to be able to do my podcast in this little tropical paradise down here. So I was thinking, it's my birthday this week. And, you know, I don't mind being on television. I don't mind that millions of people know me. I don't mind that they come up and say hello to me in restaurants or shake my hand. I love all that. I'm very quick to take a picture, shake somebody's hand. I'll always do those kinds of things. But I hate birthdays in restaurants. My entire life, I've never let anybody bring a birthday cake to a table I'm sitting at. I don't like surprise birthday parties. I'm not big on birthday parties altogether. It's interesting how I keep birthdays so much to myself. I almost treat it like it's a personal thing. But yet other aspects of my life, I open so wide and expose myself. And I think it's interesting how birthdays are the things that I hold back. But this year's a big one for me. And uh, uh, I got a feeling my wife, Nicole, has something planned. I know it won't be a surprise party because she knows I won't go to one. But uh, uh, it is my birthday week, and I am a bit reflective about it uh, uh, because there's a lot going on this week. My birthday is actually November 7th, which is often Election Day. So sometimes uh, over the years I've gotten my birthday off uh, because it's Election Day, which wasn't a bad deal. But this is Election Week, and tomorrow is Election Day. And I don't want to be political at all, but I want to talk about voting for a moment. You know, we all have a responsibility to vote. We all have a responsibility to vote intelligently. And we all have a responsibility to vote in a way that serves our own interest. That's what a democracy is all about. In America, we don't vote for the interests of someone else. We vote for our own interests. That's how we protect our country. By voting for our own interests, we are typically voting for the same interests of our neighbors, our peers, our community, our income levels, uh, many, many things come together when we vote for ourselves. So I thought I'd put four things that I believe are, are three principles of voting that are non-political, but I'm going to suggest that we vote in this fashion. Now, first of all, a vote is a huge responsibility. It's a very important thing. But I'm laughing because when I was a kid, my mother used to vote for the handsomest candidate. Now, she's uh, extreme liberal. My family is all uh, liberal Democrats, but that's not the point. Whoever was the handsomest candidate was the one she voted for. She didn't know the issues. She didn't know what or why. But in her case, the handsomest candidate tended to always do the best. Well, I don't think that's responsible. I think we have a responsibility to know a little more and do a little more. See, here are the big three things that I think are our responsibility when we go vote today. Number one, vote logically, not emotionally. Remember, we make bad decisions when we're emotional. Sometimes the worst decisions in our life when we're emotional. So don't vote emotionally. Vote logically. Think about the things that are logical. Are you happy with where things are going or not? Are you happy with the things that may have happened to your family or not happened to your family this year? Are you happy with our security? Are you happy with our international position? Is your life better or worse? These are the things you need to think about. But don't. Don't vote emotionally. Vote logically. And remember, 
if our founding fathers and all the generations before us had voted emotionally, not logically, I'd wonder if our country would still be here. So we were a logical experiment in democracy. So we need to go at our elections logically, not emotionally. Number two, don't vote for hate. Voting for hate is the most emotional thing of all. You might not know it when you're doing it, but if you vote for hate, then you're being as emotional as it gets. And that doesn't justify a vote. Vote for something. Vote because you believe the direction is right. Vote because you believe the direction is wrong. Vote because something that's important to you is happening or isn't happening. But vote for something. Don't allow hate to overcome the logic of what's better for you and your family. And my third rule is vote selfishly. Voting should be extremely selfish. You should vote for yourself and your family, not someone else's principles or approval. You're not voting for anyone else other than your own family. It's simple. Vote for your personal life. Is it better or worse? Is your outlook better or worse? Are you happier or unhappier? Those are the things that you need to vote for. Will changing direction make it better for you? Will staying in the same direction make it better for you? The trick is vote for yourself. Don't let anyone influence what's important to you. Vote for your own happiness, your own peace of mind, your own prosperity. Vote for what's important to you, never what's important to someone else. So those are Taffer's big three. Vote logically, not emotionally. Don't vote for hate and vote selfishly. Vote for yourself. Vote for your family. Vote for what it means to you. If we do those three things, then our elections will be logical, meaningful, and contributory because everybody will be voting for what's best for them and, in most cases, their communities. That's the core of America, not hate, not voting for hate, not voting out of emotion, voting for the future, voting for something because that's what we all need to be. We need to be for something. I say let's get for tomorrow just as a general rule. Let's make tomorrow better. Let's be for it, not against it. So those are my election rules. I thought I'd share that with everyone. thought to myself, I want to make sure that when people vote, that they just take a moment and vote truly for what's best for them. And I hope that's what you do. But whatever you do, vote. Make sure you vote. Sometimes you can vote today with early voting, but certainly vote tomorrow. And it, it is not only our responsibility to ourselves, it's our responsibility to each other. Here are some useful car tips that you might not be aware of. A coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean your interior. Removing excess weight from your car will improve gas mileage. And you can place your key fob to your chin to increase its range. Pretty weird, right? Well, here's another tip you might also not know about. True Car also helps people get used cars. That's right. True Car isn't just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with TrueCar, users can see what others paid so they know if they're getting a good deal before they buy. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with TrueCar certified dealers. When you're ready to buy a new or used car, check out TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Okay, so (laughs) I'm reading some articles, and I found something that is the epitome of littering. 
And I remember when I was a little kid, there were these TV commercials, and it was a Native American on a horse, and he would be riding through the Tetons or Yellowstone or <laughs> one of those parks, and he'd come across a piece of paper on the ground, and he would tear up, and it would say, don't let her keep our parks clean. And, and, and I remember that commercial, and it was a powerful commercial, and it taught me, you know, you definitely don't want to litter in parks. And you think to yourself, well, years ago, people really respected things. We don't respect it as much today as we used to. It's funny. You go talk to people in, in, in almost every business, and they'll, they'll say, you know, the park used to be much cleaner years ago. Two generations ago, we didn't mess it up this way. And you know, I tell you, two generations ago, it was a cleaner and better here. And you hear that stuff all the time. Like our generation is the generation that, that is really irresponsible and doesn't clean up and leaves litter everywhere. Well, I think we might have proved that whole premise wrong here. I got an article in front of me, and really the headline of the article is, this is why park rangers warn tourists not to throw things in Yellowstone's geysers. Okay, so there's a geyser in Yellowstone that is called Ear Spring Geyser. Ear Spring Geyser is normally a very docile hot pool, but its rare eruption last month shot water, rocks, and trash upwards of 20 feet, according to the United States Geographical Survey. It was the spring's first eruption of this magnitude since 1957. But what's fascinating is what came out of it was a bunch of trash from 40, 50 years ago. So things like <laughs> a 1930s pacifier, uh, 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 cigarette butts, a grizzly bear warning sign, and general trash from 1957 came flying out of this geyser 20 feet high. So they've determined that this isn't a trash. This is collector trash. So they're collecting all the trash. They're taking the trash to the Yellowstone Museum. And the trash that came out of the geyser is now part of American history. But, you know, 40 years ago, they were throwing stuff in the geysers. I'm not sure our generation is doing that. So who can say? that we're better at these things, we're more responsible, or the last generation is. Honestly, I don't quite know. I do know one thing. There's this big fear about children and screens and phones and their impact psychologically upon them. And reading these articles, as I do, and my daughter's grown up, so I'm, I'm not managing any children at this moment. But reading these articles, as I have been, has been really pretty horrifying. So there's an article that was in the New York Times this week called The Dark Consensus About Screens and Kids Begins to Emerge in Silicon Valley. Now, the people in Silicon Valley that know the most about the impact of software, phones, tablets, computers on young people are, in fact, the people in Silicon Valley and all these companies. And sort of like the tobacco companies, they're not so eager to share this research that might be you know, part of their demise or would justify a reduction of people using their product. But what's happening is, Doing no screen time is easier than doing a little. They can control it. So here are some of the things that we found. Some of the people who built video programs are now horrified by how many places a child can now watch a video. Some of the things that are happening is a lot of Facebook executives don't allow their children to be phones to school. Okay, why is that happening? You know, our parents are like, aren't you worried you don't know where your kids are and you can't find them? And the Facebook executives are saying, and I'm like, no. I don't need to know where my kids are every second of the day. For long-time tech teachers, they're finding that students are reacting differently in class with regard to learning. On a scale between candy and crack cocaine, computer use, according to these Silicon Valley executives and the ones that are research it, 
is much closer to crack cocaine than it is to candy. So it is becoming solidly addictive. It's changing our habits. In some cases, it's creating some psychological challenges for children. But there's no question, and it reminds me of the tobacco industry, that the computer industry and companies, social media companies especially, know that their product is causing a negative effect upon the children of America. They know it. They're trying to figure out a way to reconcile it or deal with it without us really finding out about it and impacting their revenue. Well, if they don't find a solution to it and look at being responsible soon, then my guess is the marketplace is going to react. And no different than cigarettes. At some point, it's going to blow up and the truth is going to come out. But make no mistake, there is a significant issue uh, with regard to the impact of software, phones, computer games upon children. And they're not even suggesting that budgeting that time uh, is all that helpful in some cases. It's just the product itself and their interaction when they're alone with it all the time that's changing their mental state. Well, you know I love to call out bullshit. And I am calling out bullshit. So what I did last night, being the nutcase that I am, is I uh, was looking in the newspaper, and there was an article from TripAdvisor. And TripAdvisor picked the 10 top pizza restaurants or 10 top pizzas in America. So I got the list. Immediately when I saw the pizza list, those of you know me, know I'm very close to Barstool Sports, Dave Portnoy and, and, and Dan Katz. So I forwarded the article to Portnoy. Portnoy texted me back and says, ah, this is complete bull. Uh, uh, you know, none of these guys are even really good at this. So I thought to myself, I wonder how credible these pizza reviews are. So last night at 2 in the morning, I'm sitting here in my bus just to give you a little visual, uh, in my shorts and T-shirt, and I have printed up articles and lists of pizza lists of all over the country, of top 10 pizza lists around America. And I took a piece of paper, and I wrote three columns on it, and I listed all of the pizza, 10th place, 9th place, 8th place, 7th place, all the way up to 1st place, from three different sources that I thought were credible, and I wanted to see how common are they? I mean, is the number one pizza place that these three entities the same? Is number two, number three the same? How many are, in fact, the same when you compare these pizza lists? So down my left column, I have all the TripAdvisor reviews. Down my middle column, I have all the reviews from Food and Wine magazine. I thought that would be a good one. And on the right column, I have the review from USA Today. There are 30 winners on my piece of paper from number one, to number 10 for TripAdvisor, 1 to 10 for Food and Wine, and 1 to 10 for USA Today. So there are 30 entries. Each one of these 30 entries is supposed to be a top 10 pizza restaurant in America. And after I listed all the 30s, I realized that one operation appears on two lists. Other than that, other than those, that one operation, Every other place is different. There is absolutely no commonality, no repetition, no redundancy between any of these top 10 pizza lists across the country. So if they're not even sort of alike, they're not even close to alike, they're exactly unalike would make the entire premise bullshit, wouldn't it? If you look at pizza reviews across the country, my guess is these 30 places that I'm looking at are probably pretty good. But there is no top 10 pizza places in America. And that's what I proved this weekend. People can say it all day long, but when you look at every source that does this, none of them say the same thing. So let me give you the number three. So according to TripAdvisor, Modern Apiza 
in New Haven is the third best in the country. According to Food and Wine, Milo and Olive in Santa Monica is the third best in the country. And according to USA Today, Pizzeria Bianco in Phoenix is the third best in the country. The second best in the country, according to TripAdvisor, is Bleecker Street Pizza. Number two for food and wine is A16 Rockridge Pizza in Oakland. Number two for USA Today is DeFara in Brooklyn. And number one, which you'd think if they got anything right, they'd get the number one right. Because it should be the most famous. It should be so out there, so obvious. Nope. According to TripAdvisor, number one was Regina Pizza in Boston. According to Food & Wine, number one was Pizzeria Vetri in Philadelphia. And according to USA Today, Pepe's in New Haven is number one. By the way, I'm with uh, USA Today. I believe Pepe's New Haven is my favorite pizza in America. But what's incredible is the only operation that appeared twice on two different lists (laughs) was Forcella in New York City. Forcella in New York City was number nine on the food and wine list and was number seven on the TripAdvisor list. So Alforno was number 10 on USA Today and number nine on food and wine. Other than that, all of these are complete mismatches, and I'm guessing they're all pretty good. But I wanted to bring some clarity to this. So, Mr. Portnoy, if you're listening, I thought I'd make it clear. Your pizza reviews, and I've done some with you, are the best in the country. At least they provide consistency. (laughs) They show people what the product is. Because these lists that I'm looking at are bull, whereas I give a full and complete endorsement to Dave Portnoy's pizza review at Barstool Sports. At least that one is real. Food is so subjective. It's just unbelievable that one guy can love the pizza and the next guy hate it. Oh, the same thing is true with burgers. When I look at burger lists, it's the same. When I look at steakhouses, top 10 steakhouses in America, how often do you see two lists that are the same? Two lists that even have the same entity anywhere on the list. So understand food is subjective. And what we like, we like. What we don't like, we don't like. And in many cases, what we see when we read these publications is really glorified marketing, advertorials, if you will, or advertorials, I should say, if you will. Those are manipulative. And that list we may have looked at. There might be some advertisers in there, et cetera. But let me make one quick observation. Next time there's a best of issue. Best 10 restaurants in town. Best 5 this. Best 10 that. Take a look at the magazine. Take a look at the newspaper and see if there's any ads that are from those winners. Because more often than not, you'll see some advertising in that section from those winners who won that contest. I'm not suggesting it's set. Because (laughs) years ago in the bar business when we used to do contests, we'd always want to be fair. So we'd never pick the winners. But sometimes we'd pick the losers. (laughs) So... In many cases, uh, the ones that they've never heard of can't possibly win. And the ones that they've never heard of are the ones that don't advertise in their publication. The ones that advertise, they've heard of. So they tend to make the list. So look at these things with a grain of salt. My guess is they're pretty good. uh, uh, And my guess is that some of them are probably pretty bad. Well, voting is important. We don't want to forget to do that. And and, uh, uh, that's my birthday week. We got Michael Graves. We got listener calls. And we'll be back in just a minute. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Well, it's another week of NFL and NCAA football. And if you haven't, 
It's time to take your pigskin knowledge to the bank at BetDSI.com. BetDSI is celebrating 20 years online and has built an impeccable reputation for great service and fast payment to your winnings. And to help you get started with some extra bang for your buck, BetDSI is offering double your money on your first deposit. That's right. Deposit to start winning and get up to $2,500 free. That's double your money right from the get-go. When it comes to football, BetDSI has every wage you could ever want or imagine. If it's happening, BetDSI will put a line on it. You can bet on the NFL, NCAA football, MLB, NBA, UFC, eSports, and all other global sports, and even bet on politics, celebrities, and reality shows for that matter. You can also bet on games while they're actually playing real-time with BetDSI's live betting. So join BetDSI today using promo code TAFFER101, and you've already won by doubling your bankroll straight away. Again, that's TAFFER101 to get in the action and get paid. And once you become a member and you'll have all this bonus money, what should you do? I'll tell you what to do. Join the BetDSI 2018 Handicappers Cup. Players must make five plays each week to be eligible for that week's free play prize of $25. Over the entire season, if you have the most winning picks, you'll have a shot at the grand prize of $1,000. So go to BetDSI today. For terms and conditions, go to BetDSI.com. Support for No Excuses with John Taffer comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. Let's talk about buying a home. It can be one of the most important purchases you'll ever make. But today's fluctuating interest rates can leave you with unexpected higher payments, which can turn a great experience into an anxious one. That's why Quicken Loans created their exclusive buying power process. Here's how it works. They check your income, assets, and credit to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer, making your offer more attractive to sellers. Once verified, you qualify for their exclusive rate shield approval. They'll lock your interest rate for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. Then once you've found the one, if rates have gone up, your rate stays the same. But if rates have gone down, you get to keep the new lower rate. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash taffer. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Taffer's back. This is no excuse. Okay, I'm pretty excited here, buddy. So so, uh, it's not only great to have Macau Graves here. We're not on the phone. We're looking each other in the face. Right. So, so this is awesome. You know, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I went took drum lessons for nine years. My whole life I wanted to be a musician. That's all I ever wanted to do was play music. And one day I wound up managing a nightclub through booking it. And my biggest regret in life, and it's interesting, uh, Michael, how people will say, uh, 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 you, you don't live your dreams. I actually didn't. And people say that I'm mm. successful, but every day I wish I was you. That's I, amazing. <laughs> I miss playing music yeah. so much. So tell everybody why you're in Vegas. Well, I'm playing at the Beauty Bar tonight uh, with my band. Wow. And your band is? Michael Graves. Michael Graves. So, so uh, you know, I'm a big fan. 
Thanks, John. And, and I've listened to you for a lot of years. And, and Thank you. Uh, uh, success. Do you take it for granted? I don't. I definitely don't. Because the road to get here has has been so long. And, and, and so I, I don't take it for granted. Uh, you know, because I have to keep my feet you know, firm on the ground. So you are an enviably successful musician. Thank you. You've been in a lot of bands. Yeah. I worked with a lot of musicians. You did. So, so when you were 14, 15 years old, Michael, did you picture this? I kind of, I mean, it's not how I imagined it. You know, I imagined, um, you know, I imagined something. I, I always believed. I, I never allowed disbelief to come into my mind. I always focused on um, being successful. I'm going to make it. I don't know how I'm going to make it, but I'm going to make it. So you, you always had this confidence in yourself. Yes. When was the first time you, you touched music? I was, I was probably about, I don't know, nine or ten and before before music that dream was in my heart and in my soul i wanted to be um I, you know i wanted to be a pastor i wanted to to you know uh be a godman if you will um and i tell the story so you wanted to inspire people I even did. at a young age yeah that's it was, fascinating yeah, it was, just do it now through your music exactly it was always in my heart and my soul to to teach people and to motivate them and to uh you know i always had duty in my heart um when did you know that it was going to be music? I my parents, my mom and dad always used to take my my brother and my sisters to New York City around Christmas time. And I remember being very very young and we were in the city and it was the first time I ever saw homeless people. And I and I remember that that's all I could think about when I when I saw these homeless people uh on the on the streets it, it, I had never seen that before. And then all of a sudden, the dream in my heart changed to 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 music. And I, I went home and I, I wrote a song called "Mostly Alone." Wow! So it happened that quickly. It, yeah, yeah. And when you look back at your life, you know the moment that happened. Yeah, definitely. I I always felt up to that point when I listened to music. I, I grew up in a you know a very musical household. My my dad always played music, and my mom was always playing music, and my brother. I grew up in the house with my uncle, so music was always around. And I listened to it, and I. Always had a, um, you know, it moved me physically. I, I could, I just had this deep sense of, of, you know, I felt it in my heart and my soul. But I never, the dream wasn't there yet. So when did you uh, uh, realize that that this could be your future? Did it happen, or did you know it was going to happen? I I knew it. I, I did. I, I always believed, and and I always. I always believe, and I always tell the story, you know, I remember being very young, um, and my father, who was a military man, um, until he got out and then became a police officer, he loved the ocean, he loved uh, bringing us to the beach, and I remember overhearing my mom and dad, uh, as I was playing on the beach, I was building something in the sand, and I overheard my parents talking, and my mom said to my dad, we never have to worry about this one because he's going to be an artist. Wow. And that gave it. me such confidence. It gave me such confidence, and I always heard that in my mind. Wow. That's really important. So really, your parents gave you the, the, the inertia, if you will, Definitely. and the confidence to step forward. For what sure. happened to that first song? 
Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, do you I, still know it? Is I, it still yeah, your head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a G to a C. It was like, mostly alone because there's no something. It was mostly. a three-chord? Yeah, three yeah, quarter? yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was like, you know, knocking on heaven's door. Well, GDC. You know, Tom Petty built a whole career with three chords. So. A lot, yeah, a lot of bands did. <laughs> That's true. So, so, so uh, uh, you wrote that song. What did you do with it? Did you sing it for your parents? Did you... I I did. You know, I always showed what I, I was doing to my mom. Um, and and at a very young age, too, I, I started to get into the recording. I, I, I love to record. And I used to get the different, you know, I had a little recorder. I stole a recorder from my brother. And that was my, you know, I would record some tracks on the one recorder. And then I would play it and record with the other one. And that was my first, you know. So that's how you made, it. like, two tracks? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was my Smart. multi-track. Wow, so 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 you were really into melody then when you were young, because obviously you were so. listening back again. Because mm-hmm. your songwriting is is very melodic. It's great melodies to your song. Thank you. So 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 you you uh, 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 looked for chord changes and melodies at a very young age. So yeah, were you more about melody or words? I was more about words, definitely more about words. So what's your writing process? Um, Does it start with a string of words that inspires it, it you? It used to. Uh, I used to do a lot of like automatic writing. I kept journals. I still keep journals. Uh, lots of poetry, uh, and and so I would start with 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 words, um, and I would just open up one of my notebooks, and then I'd begin to play, and and I would just scan the words. And then when something jumped off the the page at me, a you know a phrase or or a sentence, or a riff or a, yeah, I yeah. would start to sing it, um, and I always knew that I was onto something. It's the same thing today. I always know that I'm onto something when I feel it, when it moves me. Yeah. Then I know that I'm that I'm close. Yeah, you know a great song even when you write it yourself. True, you do. I mean, yeah. a, a hook is a hook. Yeah, it works. Sure. Okay, so you're in high school. <laughs> what happened when you left high school? Well, my father gave me about a year to figure out what I was going to do. And that was pretty if, gracious. I got about a week. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my old man gave me about a year. And then if I continued to live in the house under his roof, um, I had to get some sort of job or I had to go into the military. Um, so I, as a young man, worked up at a, a resort in the Catskill Mountains in New York City, in the Irish Hills. Which one? Uh, new, uh, Sunny Hill Resort. It was called Sunny Hill Farm back then. It's called Sunny Hill Resort now. I worked at Grossinger's in the Catskill Mountains, which, which was not that far away. Yeah, Sullivan County. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. So I used to go up there and and and, and work. Um, and right before my senior year in high school, a good friend of mine was killed up there. Mm. So that really spun my trajectory all over the place. I was crushed, and I never went back. I didn't. I didn't go oh. back up. So I skipped that summer. I got a job working for a, uh, a tree company, you know, pruning trees. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, well, I, you were I, still writing songs at the time? I was. Okay. Absolutely. I, I joined a band called Mopes. and um, Jersey band? Yeah. Yeah. All Jersey <laughs> boys, of course. Great Jersey bands. Uh. And uh, I, I was recording a, a demo with my band in a, in a studio in Lodi, New Jersey. Uh, and that's where I ran into the to the misfits, the 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 guy that was recording. His name was Bobby Alec at Real Platinum Studios. He said, "I'm working with this band. I've known them since they were kids. They're in here. They're trying to get the band back together." He said, "It seems you have some talent. Maybe you should give these guys a call and and 
and give it a shot. Maybe you audition with them. So, so, so you did. So, so you met with the Misfits. How old were you? I was nineteen. Wow. How old were they? About the same. They were thirty. They were in their thirties. Okay, so they were a lot. Of, so they were old. So you're a young punk. I was young. I and was and you young. go into and you audition for them in essence. Yeah. Tell me about that moment. Was that scary? Like the night before, were you nervous? Were you? Oh God, yeah, I was because I knew that. I knew that this was it. This is what everything was was leading up to. I really felt that in my heart. As soon as I heard the the Misfits music, and really focused on it, I knew this is it. Um. And so, of course, I, I was I was real, real nervous. I was real nervous. So tell me about it. So, so you went in. And would you, did you sit and talk for a while? Did you audition? Um, I, I remember walking into the room. It, it was strange. It, it wasn't how I imagined it. Those guys owned a. Um, uh, they made like you remember the Exacto knives? Sure. They had a big shop and they made knives and like little small parts like that. They had a big machine shop. So hmm. uh, they had the, a little rehearsal space in the in the upstairs of that. So I remember walking in. So that's a little strange to walk into. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was definitely not a traditional studio. Yeah. (laughs) And I remember walking in and the, and Doyle wasn't there. The guitarist wasn't there. And it was just Jerry, the bass player and Chud, who was the drummer. And I thought this is, I've never jammed with just the bass player and the drummer. This is going to be very, very strange. Um, and I talked a little bit, uh, with, with Jerry, not much. And then we just, and then we jammed. How long did it take you to know that it was working when you started jamming? As soon as I heard the music. When I first bought the, the CD from the yeah. record store and put it on, I, I, I knew I knew that I had, I had to be the guy. It fit you. Definitely. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a perfect blend. Definitely. Okay, so now uh, how long did it take them to tell you that you're in the band? Oh, man. Uh, it, almost a year. Holy it was, shit. Yeah, it was so you auditioned. Time. I auditioned, yeah. Uh, did you think it went great that day? I did. So I, you I, left, I yep, expecting uh, a phone call, uh-huh. and you waited a fucking year. Well, <laughs> no. I, I left, and then I got a call. Why don't you come back and jam, and, and you know we'll do it again. Um, they, they, it, they had a hard time settling on me. I didn't really get along with Doyle. Doyle didn't really get along with me. Again, like I was this young, skinny punk smoking cigarettes. I had a, a you know, a bad attitude. Right. Um, and so I was kind of like the, the practice guy. They took out an ad in the village voice and people started showing up from all over the country because word got out that Jerry was recording the the practices so everybody wanted to come and come sing and with the misfits sure, sure. and what they started to do was a b me it was like all right they'd bring in somebody who was kind of good and then they'd have me sing and i would always blow people out of the water um so slowly but slowly they realized that you were the guy well so they weren't aggressive decision makers not at all <laughs> not at all so we started to approach halloween 1994 i think it was and the misfits had to make a decision whether they were going to launch on halloween or wait another year because the misfits can't come out you know right. november 15th right, makes no right, sense. right so back then that was when new york city hardcore was really starting to get going yep and misfits got a call from ken creedy who was managing typo negative at the time and he said typo negative wants to invite you to to come out and play some songs during their encore set. They, you know, everybody knew that Misfits wanted to relaunch. But they didn't have a singer. So they asked Pete Steele. Pete said, of course, I'll sing, but I don't know any of the songs. Someone's got to teach him. So they called me. To teach him the to songs. To teach him the songs. I was a huge typo negative fan. So I was like, oh, So there's something to be said in this. You put your ego aside. Oh, yeah. 
and you just stepped up and you did what you had to do to build the relationships mm-hmm. and create the opportunity for yourself. Keep swinging the bat. That young cocky kid could have said, F you. Sure. I'm not teaching him. Sure. Hire me or no. Sure. But, but you didn't. No, I was working two jobs at the time and, um, yeah, and just kept on going. And, and Were you offended? No. No. I, I felt, again, you were happy to be there. Am- amazing opportunity right. to... to uh, to come in contact and uh, with somebody that I looked up to and be a part of it. Yeah, yeah. So, so finish your story. So there we are in in Brooklyn, in Typo Negatives rehearsal space. I'm teaching Pete these songs, and he stops everybody in the middle, and he says, "This is your singer. This kid here sings these songs better than me, better than anybody in this room. This this kid's got to be your singer." Wow, and that's how it happened. And that's how it happened. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, so pretty courageous of him, pretty generous of him as well. Very, very. Wow. Okay, so you're in the Misfits. I'm in the Misfits. So they look at you and they say, that day at that uh, uh, rehearsal, uh-huh. did they look at you and say, okay, you're in? <sighs> yeah. It happened, yeah, so it kinda, happened yeah. in the flesh that day. Yeah, you know, it, oh, it's funny. Man. There was no like handshake or anything. It was just like, all right. All right, that was it. Let's do this. So, so, so. You finish the rehearsal, you go home, you're in the fucking Misfits. Yeah. How did surreal. that feel? It, it was very surreal. It was very surreal. I was excited. I, uh, you know, I remember my friends throwing a party for me, and, and everything just seemed strange. And I remember just having a, a, a calmness about me. I, I didn't want to get too deep in the, I made it, because I knew I hadn't made it yet. Right. I was long, long, long. All you made was the opportunity. Right, right. The hard... The hard part was yeah. was still to come. Now you had to become an entertainer. Yeah, yeah. On and a band that that was rabidly loved by its fans, a band that uh, had inspired greats like Metallica. And, oh, yeah. Well, I, mean, I love on, the Misfits. Yeah, so, on and so on. How did that feel being the outsider coming in? Because I'm guessing fans might have rejected you a little in the beginning and such. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I knew that that was there. I, I knew that that... that I was going to come up against that. But again, I, I knew that I had to keep my blinders on. I had to stay in my lane and just focus on what I had to do to be successful. So you ignored all that noise. I did. And you just focused on performing. Yeah. Doing a great job. Yep. And uh, uh, you won them over big time because they loved it. I did. So probably the fans that rejected you the most in the beginning loved you the most in the end. Yeah. I... I it's amazing. I, I still meet people that say, you know, I remember coming to the shows, you know, when you guys came back and, man, I hated you. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I wanted to come and see you fail. You know, I tried to get on the stage and knock you out. And, and by the end of the show, they were fans. Yeah. You know, we were talking before we, we went uh, uh, um, and turned the tape machine on about a blessed life. Yeah. But, you know, you were born blessed with great parents, obviously, in a yeah. great country, you know, with great opportunity around you. But you made your life blessed. Yes. I mean, you did, Michael. The yes. fact of the matter is you learned your craft, you work hard, you, you chased the misfits for a year, mm-hmm. right? Did whatever they asked you to do to get mm-hmm. into it. And then, okay, so now you're in the misfits, but you've done so much since then. Yeah. So, so talk to me about moving on from something that's that exciting, because that's a big decision that you yeah. had to make. So you're in a successful band now. Mm-hmm. You're making a living. You're a freaking rock star, mm-hmm. right? You, you're, you're not only in a band. You're in a very hip band. 
Yeah. You know, a really edgy, really loved band. Yeah. With a, a fanatical kind of audience, right? Fan Absolutely. Base. How do you walk away from something like that? How do you move on? <sighs> you know, it, it was it was hard. Um, I walked away because at the end of of my tenure with the Misfits, we were we were so dysfunctional. The relationship personally, and, you're saying. Yeah, well, yeah. Nobody again. I was. Isn't I was, it a shame in those situations that the, you just can't put the work first? Yeah, it it it, it was. It, it was sad. It's a tragedy because when you put all the other stuff aside, when it came time to be on stage or to write a record, man, we were great. We together. were great. We you were are. great. And I don't think the audience perceived that friction, did they? No, no, no. On they stage, didn't. you guys were harmonious as hell. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But we, we really didn't have a central figure that was looking out for everybody to keep us together so that we could all be successful. I was a young man. I was 20-something years old in, in, the, you know, in a big business. I didn't know anything about lawyers or publishing. or I didn't know anything. So I became this resource um, you know, I, that, that they were just extracting talent from. You know, I wasn't thinking ten years ahead. Of, you know, I was going to have a you know a family, and yeah. and so maybe I should hold on to my publishing. I was just like, all right, I'm a team player. Whatever you guys think, let's do this. So by the end, but I, that's what makes a great band member. Yes, right. And you know, people forget because when I played music years ago, everybody wanted me in our band. Not because I was a good drummer, but but people liked me. Yeah. You know, I worked hard. Mm -hmm. I tried to make a song better. Don't you find that the personal part is every bit as important as the mus musical part within the band? Oh, God, of course it is. Sure. Sure. Yeah, you need that dynamic. Or, or it, it just, you know, it, it gets negative. Yeah. And that bleeds into everything that, that you do yeah. as so a did, unit. So did you feel that this was the time? I felt it was time because I... I I was dead, you know, I felt dead inside. I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't love it anymore. It and sucked I, you dry. Yeah. And so I was at that, that crossroads, you know, that rock and roll crossroads where I could continue to be a yes man and, and keep getting paid and do buses and, you know, the, the whole thing. Or Girls. I mean, you, you had yeah, it all. Man. Wine, women. Uh, yeah. You had the whole freaking thing. Absolutely. That's the so, so you got income. You got yeah. stability. Mm -hmm. You got a band that you know is going to get the next gig. Mm -hmm. You're in a cool band as hell. So yeah. people looking up with you with great respect, including the industry. Yep. And and then you say to yourself, well, I'm going to walk back into the uncertainty. Again. I walked away. I walked away because I would rather at that point in time uh, keep intact, you know, what was what I was raised to be, you know, my my virtue, my 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 principles, the things that made me me. I didn't need the fame. I didn't want the fame. It wasn't, you know, the lights and all. It wasn't all about me. Again, it was about the mission music. and duty and and music and music. Right, right, right. And 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 for a young man at that point, I was in one of the the most important, you know, bands on the planet. You were, and I had made my mark. I wrote those records. I I I did it. And so if I had never gone back into the entertainment industry and never got that chance again, I was successful. Nobody could ever take that from me. From you. That's right. And you didn't draw your identity from what you had done. You drew your identity from who you were. Yeah, that's so, true. So who you were today was far more important to you than what you did last year. 
Absolutely. So, so yeah. that's really key, though, because yeah. too many people look back and they hold on to what they have because they fear what's ahead of them. That's true. Sure. So, so you left Misfits. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? Did you go home and hang for a while? Did you think about it? I went home. I went home and I, I got a, this little crappy apartment in Seaside Heights, New Jersey. Did you have much money then? Um, I had a little. I had so a little bit okay. of money. Yeah, I had okay. a little bit of money to, um, you know, to get by for a while. Uh, I, I I got a job working uh, at marine construction, building bulkheads and docks. Okay. And at night, so from the misfits, successful rock star with it all. Yeah, you're, you're working on boats again. Yeah. So, I, so yep, five a.m. the alarm would would go off. I'll tell you a funny story. I grew up on Long <laughs> Island, and my father says to me when I'm like six, oh, I got to get a job. Yeah. So I get a job painting boats in the wintertime on Long Island. That lasted about a week, <laughs> man. It was freaking brutal up on a mast yeah. and stuff painting. Oh yeah. So you put your ego aside. You're a hardworking dude. Absolutely. And then at night, I got a job at IHOP, and I was waiting tables. Wow. Yep. It's almost like Andy Kaufman, wait, you know, after his success serving tables uh-huh. at Jerry's. It, it's for, in I just I just ran into uh, one of the waitresses that I used to work with in Los Angeles. As she came, she's like, "Oh my God, you remember me? We worked at IHOP together." <laughs> That's unbelievable. So, so you're doing that now? Did you? Were you still pursuing your music career? Sure, you were. So this was just I was. Yeah. So this was a holding place for you. It was, yeah. Um, I, I were you still writing songs then? I was. I was still writing songs. I was writing a lot of um, poetry, and yeah, I, I stayed at it. Um, um, you know, the internet at this point—it's funny to say—but the internet was like new. Yeah. You know, so I would go on 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 these on the forums and stuff, and and people would would send me money, and I would send them uh, like CDs, or I I made like lyric books again, just to oh, just to make a living. Yep. And yep. you loved the fact that they wanted your material. I mean, yeah. The fact that they would listen or read your work, I'm guessing, was really inspirational. For sure. Okay, so what was next after The Misfits? Uh, I started a band with the drummer of The Misfits, and we called it Graves. Good name. Yeah, I didn't really wa- good name. I didn't want to call it Graves because, again, I, I didn't want it all focused on me. Uh, but, yeah, everyone decided let's call the, the band Graves. And I had a... A good cache of songs that I had written while I was writing for Famous Monsters that that didn't make the cut, and yeah. I knew were were real strong songs. Um, so we developed those and and went out to Los Angeles and got in a studio and, and recorded them. So now you the man. The band's <laughs> named after you. Yeah, you're up front, mm-hmm. right? The band didn't pre-exist, right? You didn't come in. The fans didn't have any grudge against you as a new guy, right? Did you feel more pressure? I felt a lot of pressure because everybody, the the departure from the Misfits was so abrupt and so dysfunctional that people people didn't know what was what was going on. Um. So yeah, it was it was rough. Were you worried? I, I was. Mean, your name is. I on was. It now. I was worried. If I you fail now with your name on it, yeah, that that could you know stop the rest of your career. Yeah. So yeah. did it did it work right away? Did was it did it take a while for all the band members and everything to piece together? Um yeah. Yeah, it was rough. It was it, it was rough. I was I was trying to put together something that was very different than what the drummer who was my partner at the time uh saw and was trying to put together. And again, because of things that were happening in in, in my life, it was a really, really hard time for me personally. A lot of things were, were coming apart. Um, 
in your non-music life, yeah, relationships, yeah. things like that. Yeah, you know, looking back on it, it, you know, all things working together for my good, but there was a lot of tragedy. There was there was a lot of bad stuff, and so I wasn't really focused the way that I should be, and so I let a lot of the decision making go to the drummer. And again, bless his heart, he saw a lot of opportunity to make things his way and, and take advantage right, of of me, right? As you know, I was kind of down and out, and. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a hard time. It was a hard time. How did you get out of that down and out place? How do you pull yourself out of something like that? <sighs> well, one, having the people around you or having the people around me um, at the time when I was at my lowest, just showing up and saying, reminding me who I was. Um, and that they loved you. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I remember my, my buddy Jason, um, you know, coming over. You know, he was a teacher and he would he would come at lunchtime. And he would, you know, he would always be there and say, man, this is who you are. You're a musician. You're a great musician. Never forget that. Keep writing. Stop looking. You know, at, at, I, I was trying to figure out I was going to um, do this. You know, maybe I should go back to school. Maybe I should. Um, and and so there was those people around me that that really just kept on lifting me up and saying, just just stay so, the course. Is it fair to say at that stage in your life that music saved you? It absolutely did. Yeah. It pulled you out. It did. And, and you're very purposeful as a guy. Aren't you? <laughs> I, I mean, am. You wake up every day with a purpose. I can see that. Yeah. That's, so, that's so, true. Yeah. And, and I'm guessing that that's why you're as solid as you are. Because, you know, you have purpose in everything that you do in your relationships, I think, mm -hmm. and the people you work with. That's true. You know, and, and, and your fans. <laughs> and your fans. You know, I call that integrity, buddy. Thank you, sir. You know, and it's integrity to yourself. Thank you. You know, and to the people around you. Okay, so you've done so much stuff now. So, so <laughs> let's talk about Lost Boys. All right. So, well, you know, that was right after I got out of the, the Misfits. That, that was, was like the first the, one. That right? was the first. Yeah, that was the first thing. That that band probably lasted about three weeks. Okay, so they were <laughs> lost pretty quickly. Okay, yeah. so the Lost Boys never found their way. Nope. <laughs> okay, so obviously Graves. How about Gotham Road? Gotham Road. That's where I met Loki. Um, that's where Loki came into the picture. And it, and again, you know. It, uh, all things working together for my good. The way that I got the, the way that we found the guitarist for Graves was Loki just so happened to be dating a girl that was right across the street from my drummer's house, from Chud's house. And they put the the who eventually became the guitarist and Loki put a CD on the windshield of of my drummer's uh, <laughs> truck, and we listened to it. I said, "Man, this is this is awesome." But I wasn't told who was actually playing what. Uh, and so we got Loki's partner at the time. And Loki said to him, listen, if you're getting this gig. You have to take me. So Loki came out and he became uh, the guitar tech. Uh, and, and him and I just... Been just, together ever since? Yeah, yeah. We, we hit it off together and um, went through some, again, some, some trying, some, some rough times. And yeah. uh, when it all came apart... Uh, you know, Loki and I said, you know, let's 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 keep going. And, and along the way, I figured out, you know, I was listening to these songs on the CD, and I said, man, that's you playing? Like you wrote this? He's like, yeah. Um, so I started to put together some melodies and, and words in some of those songs that he never believed that that I could do something like that because the music was so different than what you any, normally did than right. anything that I had ever yeah. uh, tried before. So we put together a band called Gotham Road. 
So if I said to you today, I mean, come on, you're, you're a maestro, buddy. You know music. You know the structure. You know how to write. Yeah. If I said to you, do me a favor, write me a country western song. I got you. You got it. Okay. Absolutely. Do me a favor, write something that sounds a little classical. No problem. How about a jazz piece? I could do it. Could you do something that sounds a little like a Django Reinhardt, maybe? You know, like sure. That classic jazz? <laughs> yeah. Like good name? You like that? <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so how about something that sounds like a movie track? Could you do that? I would. Oh, my God. I would love it. Yeah. So, Relishing so, it. So... Is there any one of those musics that you hate? I don't. I, That's I, no, my point. I, as long so, as it moves me, I feel I just I'm in love with it. Yes. Yeah, so, so the fact of the matter is, you love music. I do. And and that love is in everything you do, buddy. It yeah. is. It's in everything that you do because your work is deep. Thank you. And, and it, it's because you are. You know, and I see that look into your eyes now. You should be really proud of yourself. Michael. Thanks, John. No, it's the truth, man. Okay, so now let's talk about solo performances. So now you're really out there on your own. So are you touring with the same people all the time? You're playing with different people now, all the time at that stage. Um, at that time, the the band was solid. Gotham Row, we were solid. Got you. So you had the same guys, same on the guys. with you all the time, mm-hmm. which is really important. Yes, obviously to have that yeah. camaraderie and and have those people on the road. Mm-hmm. So now, when I look at your discography. Discography. Uh-huh. We got the Misfits. We got Graves. We got Gotham Road. We got your solo, mm-hmm. and then your other collaborations. Do you like collaborating? I do. I really, really love collaboration. You have a very small ego, don't you? I do. I, I really do. You have no problem stepping aside, giving the spotlight to somebody else. Not, no, no problem at all. You have no time. You no know, issues sharing at all. Not at all. You know, it's interesting. I always say people with the biggest egos have the smallest wallets. <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Because their ego gets in their way of creating yeah. the relationships and yeah, stuff. Work. Yeah, yeah. So, right. So, so uh, you're a happy guy. I am. I meet so I many people in your business that aren't. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't always, you know, happy. There there were certainly years that, you know, I call them the dark years. Um, it, You know, it, it was... I, I, I kind of lost my way. I, I was looking at everything that was happening to me in my life as a, a curse and not a blessing, mm. um, especially w- when when my first child was born and, and I started to go, you know, I had to I went back out on the road um, again. And even before, you know, I, I was in this place where I say, why is this happening to me? There's so much pain. Uh, you know, I'm away from my friends. I'm away from my family. This makes no sense. It's so hard. And you feel like you don't deserve it. No, right, right. Why is this happening to me? I, 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 I always try to do good. I'm talented. I have no money in my pocket. We're sleeping on the side of the road. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, but you dug out. I did. I, I did. It, it, it turned when, you know, and I, I always say it on, on stage. I, I give my little speech that, you know, I, I, I found my way through the music because I realized in, in that, here these songs are coming out of my life, you know, my, my life experiences, my heart, my soul. And then they, they go out into the world all over the world. And these people, total strangers. Yeah. They listen to it and it connects to them. And, 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 and all of a sudden there's that, that cosmic, you know, there's this bond that, that we have. Um, so you realize somebody's listening to music right now. Right. Somebody somewhere is listening to you right, right. now, and it's, and, right, and it's and it's helping them get through the next couple hours. It's helping them get yeah. through that next day, their or heads bobbing, or their foot is tapping, or they're yeah. smiling. Yeah, and it's making them feel love, and or it's 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 giving them strength, or you know, it's providing that that service, if you will, for them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting for me. Success sort of humbled me a little bit. 
Yeah, you know, I was like you when I was young. I was a little cocky. Right? Yeah, a little well, me too. yeah, right. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I was a freaking know-it-all. Uh huh. Me too. But you know, now being in show business, and it happened for me later in life. Obviously, it happened for you much younger in life, because uh, 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 it didn't happen to me in my fifties. So now I realize that you know, I everything that I am, I owe to them. Yeah, to the fans. Uh, uh, yeah, to people of that course. choose to interact with us every day. Of course, that's really humbling. Yeah, I tell people. Yeah, and people tell me that I'm the miracle, and I give that right back to them and say, you have to realize every single one of you separately and collectively are my miracle, That's too. create the miracle. Yeah. For sure. When did you write your last song? How long ago? Um, probably about a year ago. So, so or, yeah. So, so uh, uh, do you say to yourself, okay, time to write some songs and sit down, or does something come to you? Or? Um... In the past couple of years, it's it's been, uh, I, I I it's time to write. You know, I sit down and and it's and it's time to to write. Uh, that's definitely one of the things that's changed in my creative life. Is that when I was younger, I'll, I would just hear something. You know, like a phrase would just come into my my head or a melody, almost the way that you know people who are hard of hearing. You know, I, I can't make out exactly what it is. It's just kind of sounds, and I would record it. You know, just kind of mumble. Uh, into a recorder and then decipher it. Um, that's kind of still true, but it doesn't happen as you know spontaneously. Yeah, as it used to. Do you always have a melody in your head? I do. <laughs> you do? So, I do. So you like me? You get a song stuck in your head. It's uh, there for days. You can't get rid of it. Yeah, man. Yeah, not, my wife. Yep. Puts, my wife purposely puts the worst songs in my head. <laughs> songs that I hate. She uh-huh. stick it in my head. We do that to each other sometimes. We'll just start singing a song and like, dang, ah. You got me. Yeah, and it's the worst one. Yeah, so you stick it to him. <laughs> yeah. There's <laughs> nothing worse than a bad song. Uh, song bomb. Songs never end. So when you were young, if you were talking to a 16-year-old today who, who and I don't want you to blush, buddy, but aspires to be you. Yeah. You know, to be able to, to create, a, a, get involved in a meaningful band that does meaningful work. Yeah. And, and, and have a purpose to what they do and be a rock star. Mm-hmm. What would you say to them? Well, like Bob Dylan said, you got to know your song well before you start singing, right? Um, I think that a lot of young folks believe that they can just pick up a guitar or grab a microphone and just go. One of the the things that I had going for me um, and what I tell young people is that if you've made the decision to be a guitar player, an an artist, a singer, um, that you got to work at it. And that means immersing yourself in the craft you've got you have to immerse yourself in in the craft of guitar um or singing you know i took professional lessons uh for almost five years and and all through my my teenage years i was in improv groups i was singing in the choir i was uh singing in bands um on and on um so you got to know your craft, but also there, I always say that there's, there has to be an intellectual component to what you do. And that means that you can't just sit in front of the TV and play Xbox. And right, right. You got to read books and, and, and expand and, your mind. Absolutely. You, Go right, places, do right. things, meet people, read, watch, right. listen. Right. And, and you know, the people that don't do that are stuck. It's true, right? And you have to open your eyes and and learn to see opportunity and and learn to recognize it because that's everything. That's everything. When you recognize that opportunity and and to be ready for when that opportunity comes. Yeah, and and you were, buddy. 
I was. You were? I was. And you know, the dark part of your life is a powerful lesson for us all, because look how you came out of it. I, I always go back to those dark times, and I, I remember I remember those times, and then I remember how far I've, I've come. And, it, and yeah, and it makes me strong. Yeah. So was there a day when you called your parents and said, Mom, Dad, I freaking made it? Was there a moment like that where you had an interaction with them when you could actually go home and say, Mom, Dad, it's happening? Was, did you have that moment at all? Um, I remember, again, there was a point in, in my life that I, I, I yeah, I, sort of, I made that phone call um, to my mother. And I, I remember apologizing to her for all the stuff that I had put her through as a young man. Because, again, I, I, was, I was hard to handle, man. Yeah, me too. I, I was hard to that handle. Was a tough kid. Um, and I really didn't realize how tough I was until you were a I got older. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, you know, and, and, I, and I apologized to my mom and I told her how much I appreciate my life and, and how happy I am. And I thanked her. Um, you know, I, I told, and I never told her before. And I, I went back to that story on the beach. And I said, mom, I, I, I overheard you. Um, uh, I bet you teared up when you told her that. Yeah, there Isn't was, there was, there was a lot of crying. One sentence in a child's life can change everything. That's Isn't that amazing. Yes. yes. Five or six words changed your life. Absolutely. Yep. That's really powerful. Yep. So I wonder how we can change other people's lives with encouragement and supporting them. And, and, you know, I, just from knowing you, I know you support other musicians. I do. You know, and, and, and you sure. provide opportunity to other people. Sure. But there's a lot of lesson here uh, uh, from Michael Grace. First of all, he followed his love. Second of all, he did other things to get there. He waited tables, scrubbed floors, painted boats. It was all about getting to where he wanted to be, which was a purpose. Started as a preacher. With yeah. With a desire to be a preacher. Absolutely. And you know you're a preacher right now. Because uh, yes. you're inspiring. Yeah. You're motivating. Mm-hmm. You're educating. Mm-hmm. You're teaching. Mm-hmm. You're communicating values. So you're doing it now. You're just doing it melodically. That's that's true. And it it, it, it took me a while to, to realize that. And then once I did realize that that's that's what's happened, it, it changed it changed my whole world. Yeah. So you don't write music. You really create human reactions, and you really have a purpose in every single thing that you do. That's true. So for you, music is a vehicle. That's to create the reactions in Absolute, people that you 100%, want to create. A hundred percent, yes. That's deep, buddy. Yep. That's why you're so great at what you do. Thank you. This has been a blast. You know, I love talking to you. And, Thanks, John. And, and, you know, to listen to your music, and, and, and I know a lot of it, <laughs> and, and, you know, your music can be a lot harder than you are. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and the fact is that you're a sweetheart. So where are you playing? Because I know you're on tour now. Tell people where you're going to be and, and where they can find you. Uh, tonight we're at the Beauty Bar in, in Las Vegas. Yep, great um, venue. Tomorrow we're in Murray, Utah. And then I'm going home for a couple of days to see my children. Nice. And then we get back to it uh, in Denver, Colorado. But all the dates and everything that I do is on officialmichaelgraves.com. Great. Officialmichaelgraves.com. And where can I find you on social media? Uh, Facebook. Uh, the Michael Graves. T- yep, yep. At Michael Graves. Uh, officialmichaelgraves.com at the bottom is the Facebook link, Twitter link, Instagram. Great. The whole nine. Great. You're worth supporting, buddy. Thanks, musically John. Musically and personally. Thank you. It, it was an honor to have you here. And it's I'm going to try to get to the show tonight. Awesome. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody. Michael Graves.
Are you sick and tired of paying all these different companies for your TV service? Well, Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. You can watch over 100 TV channels and thousands of movies on demand, all completely free. Pluto TV will never ask for a credit card, and you don't even need to sign up to watch for free. Pluto TV is the easy and completely legal way to watch your favorite TV shows and hit movies for free. So what are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again simply by downloading Pluto TV. And you can download it for free on all your favorite devices, including your phone, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, Smart TVs, PlayStation, and anywhere else you stream. So what are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again. Download Pluto TV for free on all your favorite devices right now. Well, I do say it, it all down. the time. My favorite part of the show is listener calls. Shut it down. And you know, sometimes people call and they say, Bar Rescue is great. Yeah, John, you changed my life. That's great. I love hearing those things. But you know what? I want to talk to people about real issues, business issues, life issues. That's why this segment is so exciting to me. So if you'd like to be on it, it's really easy. Just send an email to podcast at johntafford.com. That's podcast at johntafford.com, and you could be on the show. Tell us what you want to talk about. My producer, KC, will give you a call. We'll set up a proper time so we can speak together, and you'll be on the podcast with me. So if you have any business issues, you're thinking of starting a business, any kind of life issue you want to talk about, just send me that email to podcast at johntafford.com. That's podcast at johntafford.com. And... Don't forget, hit subscribe at Apple Podcast or go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday automatically. So, audience calls, my favorite part of the show. KC, I think we got some good ones, buddy. Let's hear them. All right, John, let's go over to uh, Carrie. She's in Nashville, Tennessee, a successful attorney, but she's also a podcaster and is thinking about uh, really kicking it into uh, full-time gear here. Carrie, you on? I'm on. How are you, Casey and John? How are you? Hi, Carrie. How are you? Nice to talk with you. You're in one of my favorite Hi. cities. I love oh, Nashville. Oh, no way. Oh, I love Nashville. Uh, uh, anytime I'm going to Nashville, it's always a good thing. And it it's isn't so all much, music. It's so much fun here. Yeah, it is. It just you know, it has a great sense of community. It just It's a wonderful place to live. You know, it would be one of the cities I would move to uh, uh, in the country. I actually chose it. I moved here on purpose because I really like the vibe and they have good schools and everything else. But um, I work remotely so I could live anywhere and said, you know what? That feels like, that feels like my home. Yeah, it's a great city. So so you're you're an attorney. I am. I don't practice anymore. So while I was practicing, uh, I found myself kind of gravitating more towards doing creative things. So, I mean, you know, you can't get too creative. Blah, you get into some trouble. But I, I would work on the firm's website or, you know, videos and yes. stuff like that. And kind of saw the opportunities in content. So eventually I moved back over. I moved into teaching first and then moved back over into training, which is where I am now. So, um, But I do a podcast, and I love interviewing people. And I was thinking about doing a video podcast kind of on my own because the, co- the podcast I do now is for my company, and I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do. But it's theirs. It's not. It's not really mine. Right. And uh, one thing that stops me, even though I've read your book and I watch your shows, is thinking about how much content there already is, and trying to come up with kind of the right concept or the perfect execution or something that will elevate it above kind of like the sea of stuff that's already out there. Yeah, you know, when I uh, uh, chose, and I've only been doing this for about twelve weeks, 
I think, carry on uh, my podcast. So when I chose to do it, there are about a half a million podcasts out there, I'm told. And I haven't looked at the stats and everything. And then, you know, I looked that we came out of the gate as one of the top podcasts in the country, running some of our podcasts are up at about 100,000 downloads, et cetera. So, so, you know, we're really proud of what we've accomplished. But, you know, I came into this with a television audience of about 90 million people and being on TV for 10 years. And even when I went into it, I said to myself, boy, now I want to be successful in a podcast business. You know, I've done the television. I do radio and, and, and I enjoy this and I want the connection with my audience. But even then, I didn't say have the arrogance to say I'm going to go out and do it on my own. Even then, I went to podcast one and realized I needed that kind of partnership with a sales team, a marketing team, a promotion team, a production team, a content development team, and really assemble the right business model uh, around the podcast. And the problem with content today, and Carrie, look, you're an attorney. You, you, you think about these things in a deeper context than many people do. If you can't monetize it, what the heck's the point? And how do you monetize a podcast? And what, what we get into in the media business is we start to do things that feel good and they feel so good that we do them again and again and again and they start taking up 30, 40% of our time, but we haven't figured out how to monetize them. So we enjoy ourselves doing it as we go broke. So the question becomes, how do you monetize it? Well, you got to have sponsors to monetize it or product integrations to monetize it. Next, you got to say to yourself, okay, what content that I could possibly provide that would cause sponsorship interest? Because I carry, I'm not a household name. I'm not a TV star. I'm not a radio star. So they're not going to sign because of my name. They're going to sign because of what I do. Does that make sense? Yes, so, definitely. So what podcast format could I create that would interest sponsors? Is it an informational podcast about financing, in which case maybe a Quicken Loans would, would be interested in that if you were doing a How to Buy a Home podcast? I'm being very succinct here. right? If you were doing a podcast on, on uh, uh, um, uh, how to buy real estate, right? how to pick your next house, you know, maybe Remax would sponsor a show like that. But so you really need to think about how do I put together content that is compelling, enjoyable for you to do? Because if it isn't fun, you're not going to be good at it. Right, Carrie? And mm, it gets very. Yes, there's a lot to do and keep up with and, and get that sponsorship interest out of the gate. Carrie, nice to talk with you. Uh, uh, send so me much, a note too. Let me know how this works out for you. And I wish you the very best of luck. Thank you, sir. All right, John, we're rolling along. Let's uh, go over to James. He's in Evanston, Wyoming, and he wants to know what the future of the bar industry looks like. Hey, John. How are you, buddy? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So so, hey. uh, are you thinking of getting into bar business? You know, I'm a new fan who just started watching with these marathons that have been going on Sunday. Yep. Uh, one day, it just came on and we sat for hours, my boyfriend and I just watching it and just loving it. And now we look forward to whenever we can see more episodes. So um, while I don't have any bar owning uh, background, I really enjoy the show and wanted to have a chance to ask a few questions. Sure. What are you thinking? Yeah. Well, I want to hear your thoughts on what the future of the bar industry looks like. And if you think it's heading in the right direction or not. You know, I, I have, I do, you know, the bar industry and the restaurant industry is way up right now. And a lot of it is, is, uh, 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 people may politically argue with me, but I'm not getting into politics here. 
the fact of the matter is that the the uh, tax cuts and the deregulation of our economy has created one of the best years in a restaurant and bar business in a long time. So we're looking at increased revenues. We haven't seen that in a long time, increased tips for our employees. So this is a good time to get into business. It's sort of boomtownish, actually, right now. And let me share a statistic with you. 879,000 new businesses, small business filings, happened just last quarter. I mean, that's unbelievable. Normally, it's about 750,000 a year. We had 879 last quarter. So there's money out there. There's people investing. Uh, the beer category is way down. Beer sales are down, but spirit sales are way up. Uh, uh, so it is a good time to look at the bar business. Also, let me share this with you, and don't hold me to an exact number. It was either three, four, or five years ago. The largest graduating college class in our history was just a few years ago. So all of those students are now 21, 22, 23, 24 years old. So there's also a demographic boom in America with regard to uh, 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 people 21 to 28 or so, which is, I guess, baby boomer grandchildren. So there's great times economically. There's a big demographic boom in the younger people that go to bars. And, you know, there's so many exciting products and stuff going out there today that all the indicators for the bar industry are really, really solid. So this is a great time to go into a bar. John, let's go over to uh, Atlanta, Georgia. We have Love Collins who wants to know what's the main reason bar owners go out of business. Ah, Love, is that your first name? Yes, it is. It's a beautiful name. So if Thank you, can, you, sir. If you can emulate love in your life, uh, uh, that's a really beautiful thing. Hats off to your parents for giving you such a beautiful name. Thank you so much. And it's such a pleasure speaking with you right now. I, I really enjoy watching the work that you do, and it's just really a privilege to be on the phone with you right now. Thank you, sir. Uh, thank you, love. So what do you want to talk about today? Well, I am a small business owner, and I love the bar industry, the hospitality industry, and um, it's really it's really been kind of shaky. So I want to just kind of look at some of the things that I may be doing that, like, what will put a bar owner out of business? I want to make sure I'm not doing that. Great. Well, let's talk about it. There's a, a couple of formulas in the bar business that are really important. One, a bar must do 10 times its rent to make money. So if the rent is 3000 a month, you got to do 30000 a month. That's just a general equation that works. If the bar doesn't do 10 times the rent, then generally the numbers won't work. Okay? So that's one thing okay. that you got to always look at is the revenue compared to the rent. Okay? So that's just one good barometer. Next, there are two areas of controllable expenses that bring bars down. One is product management. You know, beverage cost or poor costs, as they call it, should never be more than 21% of revenue. So for every dollar that you sell in beer, wine, or, or, or spirits, you should never have a greater cost than 21 cents per dollar. Make sense? Yes. When you, beer typically runs a cost of about 22 to 23%. Spirits, cocktails like scotch and soda, things like that, can run a cost of about 14 to 17%. So... You want to sell more spirits than beer, typically, just far more profitable. But you've got to manage those costs on a day-to-day -day basis. There's a company called Pevinco, which I put on Bar Rescue, that is an inventory system that you put in your bar that will protect that for you. 
and uh, uh, you should look into that. It's B-E-V-I-N-C-O. Uh, uh, and I own nothing of that company. I'm just giving you a suggestion. But they will help you manage that. The next biggie, love, is labor cost. So product cost runs about 21% of revenue. Labor cost can run you about 28% of revenue. But if you blow it and your labor cost gets up to 30 40% of revenue, you're not going to make money. So if you bring in $1,000 today, you can't spend more than $280 on labor, period, end of discussion. If you do, you're in okay. trouble. You can't spend more than 21% on, on product. If you do, you're in trouble. So those two costs, product cost and labor cost, are the two most important expense categories in the bar business. You've got to manage those. Now, love, that might take some time to learn how to manage your beverage costs and learn how to manage your labor costs. So here's what I believe. A great football coach, Vince Lombardi, once said, I never lost a game, I just ran out of time. You gotta have some extra money, love. You gotta have extra money to make it another month or two or three because if you make a mistake, what'll happen is you'll get better at it the next month and better at it again the next month. By the third or fourth month, you could have it down and be successful. What's awful is when bars run out of money after the first or second month. So they close, but yet they could have made it if they just had a little more money to figure it out. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So uh, extra dollars so that you can learn uh, uh, and get better at it and survive for two or three months while you're losing money when you first open is critical. Many bars open unprofitable, but find that profitability in the third month or so. I hope that's helpful, love. It's very helpful, sir. Thank you so much, Mr. Taffer. Uh, thank you. Thanks for calling. Good luck. Thank you. Bye-bye. Let's head over to Kenny. He is in New Jersey, and he wants to know, how do you deal with negative reviews on websites like Yelp and TripAdvisor? Hey, Kenny. How are you, buddy? Hey, John. How's it going? Good, thanks. You know, negative reviews are a bummer because uh, I'll tell you a quick story. Years ago, I had a competitor who just slammed me with negative reviews. You know, I got all, everybody in his family to do reviews from all over the country to slam me. And they weren't real. These are people that have never even been to our business. Some of them were not even in our town. So, mm-hmm. you know, bad reviews aren't necessarily legitimate, just like good reviews aren't necessarily legitimate. That's, yeah, that's what that's, sucks. That's, that's what I've found a lot of. I see that, you know, I work at a very busy bar and nightclub. And, uh, you know, when people, you know, get asked to leave or they don't get their way, I see that they go online and they, they really embellish what happens or, or blatantly lie about what happens just to try and slam the business. And it's, you know, it's frustrating because we don't want to go on and, you know, get into a keyboard fight with these people. But it's like, what, what are we doing, you know? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you can do is is uh, counterweigh it, meaning uh, uh, get 10 to 20 people to give you a positive review every night. So the way you can do that is you can do a promotion. You know, uh, uh, give us a positive review on Yelp and free cover charge next week. Give us a positive review on Yelp and, and you know, get in an hour early or, or this or get a VIP table or, or, you know, get your songs picked or hang out in the DJ booth or try to come up with some way to cause people to give you positive re- responses on Yelp. And don't say lie because that would make you inappropriate. If you had a great time, give us a great response on Yelp and get a free cover next time. There's nothing wrong with saying that. If you say, hey, give me a positive review on Yelp, you could be construed as telling them to lie. Make sense? So word it right. If you had a great time tonight, tell us on Yelp and you could win a free Christmas party. How's that? Yeah, yeah that sounds great. Outweigh it, buddy. Get 10 positives up there for every negative you get, and, and it won't be a problem for you anymore. That sounds like a good idea. Thanks, John. Take care, Andy. 
Well, that does it for this week, so thanks for listening. And if you want to follow me, it's at John Taffer on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or email me at podcast at johntaffer.com if you'd like to be on the show. And most important, hit subscribe at Apple Podcast or go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app, and you'll be able to get your new episodes automatically every Tuesday. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. 